I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Hey there, I'm sure you're here because you enjoyed my first part conversation with this wonderful human being, Sunil Gupta. Sunil is the author of a wonderful book called Backable, of which we've discussed some of the concepts in part one. Backable really is all about teaching you some of the common criteria or common characteristics of those who manage to earn the back up and support of others. Very, very clever book, very genuine human being, wonderful and generous with his advice. Sunil is not a stranger to being backable. He's probably one of the people I feel are more backable than many of the others that I meet every day. He also has an interesting track record of success. He is the founder of Rise, a startup in the medical space that he managed to get backup and support from major investors as well as Google Ventures. He eventually got that uh, to be acquired by one of the larger players in the medical space in the U.S. He worked in major organizations like Mozilla and Groupon. And although he comes from a low uh, background with a low degree, he was a successful product manager. He went into technology. He went into politics and he uh, invested successfully early on in companies like Airbnb and Calm and SpaceX. Yes, the ones that you and I have missed. Sunil is a Harvard University faculty member. He's very, very smart, very committed, someone that I have really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation on the first part with. And we will continue in this part two to talk about what will make you backable. And isn't that, again, you know, so applicable to any argument you have? It's the idea of being able, I'm convinced, but I'm also able to see the opposite side. And I understand why there is an opposite side. And maybe we should talk about it. I think that's such an humble, but also confidence building way of doing things. Let's go to the next one, which I have to admit to you is not as easy as you make it seem. So everyone knows that that storytellers go very far, that a story would sometimes win people over more than hours and hours of speeches of logic, right? And on top of that, of course, we know that. And what you're saying on top of that is, and that story needs to have a central character to it. It needs to have a bit of, a, of someone we aspire to or someone we can relate to. So much easier said than done. So tell us about your storytelling approach to things. Yeah, you know, I think storytelling has become very much in vogue. We we know, and I think we know, as you say, that storytelling can be such an important part of making a case for anything. But I think sometimes storytelling gets confused with you're not getting up in front of an audience and saying, hey, you know, once upon a time, right? And I think that the marrying story with substance is ultimately what we're trying to do here. Tell a story, but that hooks people in but then giving them the substance that will actually keep them there. And I think oftentimes that can happen through the use of a central character, a central character. And that is one person 
just one person that you take us into the shoes of first. You literally help us see what you're trying to do, your vision, the problem you're trying to solve through that person's eyes. And then you zoom out and you talk about how many people in the world are going through that person's story. So I'll tell you how I first landed on this. I was pitching Tim Ferriss on my company, Rise. And Rise, what my startup, what we did was we did one-on-one health coaching right over your mobile phone. So, you know, it was an important sort of, I think, idea for me. I thought the idea of nutritionists and having somebody who can work with you at that level can be very expensive. And what if we could bring that down to a price point that everybody could afford? That's ultimately what we were trying to do. Now, when I pitched Tim Ferriss on the idea, I spent 80% of my slides, 80% of my pitch deck talking about market size, talking about numbers, obesity, rates of hypertension and diabetes, and, and just overall how big something like this could be. And then at the very end of my presentation, I told a story. And the story was about my father, who when I was you know, nine years old, my father had a triple bypass surgery and emergency surgery. And I remember going to the hospital and just seeing, just feeling like, my gosh, he is aged 30 years seemingly overnight. And when we left the hospital, we received a piece of paper. And that piece of paper said, eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. We're an Indian family. We didn't eat broccoli. We didn't eat Brussels sprouts, you know, and there was nothing on that list about, you know, chicken tikka masala. (laughs) And so we got lucky because insurance kicked in and helped us cover a little bit of the cost for a nutritionist to be in our lives, to help us customize something that was actually going to stick, actually going to fit. And I believe that that was one of the reasons that my dad, knock on wood, is still alive today. Now, when I told that story to Tim Ferriss, he was like, what the hell are you doing saving that story to the very end of your presentation? You should tell that story first. Help me feel the pain of what it is you are trying to do, but help me feel that through a compelling story of one person. And then talk about the numbers. Then talk about the data. And I thought that was very interesting. So I tried that with some of my pitches, my next pitches. Tim, by the way, he, he ended up passing, but, but he gave me this advice. And so I, re, I reoriented my slide deck and I, I told this new story with some of my other pitches. And I started to realize that like the room was just reacting differently. They were responding differently because I was taking them into the eyes of this central character. But then as I zoomed out, Mo, and I started to look at like, wow, is this something that I just arrived on? I realized, no, not really. I, I didn't just arrive on this. I mean, look at the way that you, you'll read a compelling journalism story. Look at the way that reporters write. They don't start out by saying, here's this massive, massive problem in this country. What they'll likely do is they'll get you into the eyes of one person. That's how great stories are written. They're taking the eyes of one person first, make you really feel who that person is. Then they'll zoom out and they'll talk about what's happening at a, at a national or a global level but it's always one person. And so that's just, I think, how great storytelling is done. And now I've been able to sort of work with companies like DocSend, which analyze thousands of pitch decks. They've partnered with Harvard Business School to do this. And what we realize now is that if you look at the orientation of successful pitch decks, they almost never start with the numbers. They almost always begin with their central character's story. I love that. I love that. I think our entire life is stories and we sort of miss that when we wear 
the suit and the tie and the, and the serious look. And we start to pitch as if, you know, it's all about numbers and success and dollar signs. When in reality, I, when I used to teach my senior business leaders, at least my style, I, I always said that every deal that's ever been closed in history was closed on an emotion not on logic, you know, whether that emotion is, oh, I relate to this. My father has gone through this. I want to solve that problem. Or that emotion is ego, you know, like, oh, my other competitor did this and I need to be bigger than them. Or is it, and there is always that idea where you can really never invoke an emotion with numbers. Yeah. You can only invoke it when you have a central human story that people can relate to. I want to skip one concept because I, I thought on the other hand that your storytelling was also really interesting when you said make it inevitable. So you basically said, don't tell the story of your idea, of your ambitions, of your dreams as if, and hey, you know, there is a chance for this to happen. You're almost saying, make it clear that this already happened and, you know, Maybe you want to be part of my journey or not, but somehow this is not something that you want to miss out on. Yeah, yeah. It was one of the harder lessons for me to learn because I'm certainly, my instinct whenever I come up with a new idea is to talk about why it's new and talk about why it's exciting. One of the things I think we know and has been taught to us by people like Daniel Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman with his Nobel Prize winning work around loss aversion it basically shows us that the pain of making a bad decision is twice as powerful as the pleasure that we get from making the right decision. And that's true for all of us. That's true even for people who we think might be attracted to risk. I think they still have that fear of making the bad decision much more powerful than the pleasure they get from making the right one. And so what that means is that when you walk into a room with a backer, you can't just point out the positive of your idea. You have to neutralize the negative of the idea as well. And one of the ways that I think we do that is not, again, by just pointing out why it's new and exciting, but by showing why the idea is inevitable. Why is this idea inevitably going to happen? And it takes a little bit of humility, I think, to take this approach, because what you're effectively doing is you're actually taking your idea and you're putting it to the side for a moment. And instead, you're putting on what I call your anthropologist hat. And you're thinking about where is the world actually headed? with or without my idea, even if my idea didn't exist, where are we going to be a few years from now? And then what you do is you talk about how your idea actually fits in to that overall vision. So it is backwards in some ways to the way that I think we sometimes think of these sort of change the world sort of pitches, which is, I believe the world's going to be this way. My idea is going to make it that way. That tends to be how we sort of view innovators and people who are changing the world. But I, I did not find that to be the case in the overwhelming majority of the situations. It is more that I believe the world is going to go this way. And here's how my idea fits in. It's completely backwards. And it's the sense of inevitability that really gets investors and backers and, and, and early employees really on board. You know, people sometimes point to Steve Jobs as the counterexample of this. They say, well, Jobs, you know, Jobs always loved to, to sort of quote Henry Ford. And Henry Ford said, hey, if you ask people what they need, they would have said a faster horse. Okay. It's a good phrase. But the thing is, if you then would have asked them, well, why do you want a faster horse? They would have said, well, because I want to get from point A to point B faster. right?" And if you were to extrapolate that out, then inevitably you would know that the desire for speed 
was going to, at some point in time, exceed the capability of a horse. <laughs> so eventually, something else was going to have to come along, right? And that was the thinking that I think some people like Henry Ford sort of put into their innovation. Again, it's not, I think the world should head this way. It's more that I think the world is heading this way. It's inevitably going that direction. What is it going to need? When Steve Jobs launched the iPhone, you know, one of the things that he did is he quoted Wayne Gretzky. He said, I'm skating to where the puck is already going. So when we walk into a room, again, we can't just talk about why something is new and exciting. That's important. But I think what's equally important is why this is inevitable, why it's already going to happen with or without us. We just want to get ahead of it. And we want to do a nice job with brilliant design and do it well. And we want you to be on board. I love that. I love that. I have to push that humbleness then into the previous concept that I skipped, which, which is the idea of, you call it earned secrets. Yeah. So from a humbleness point of view, I must have been the audience of a few thousand pitches in my life. I mean, because I'm nice and because somehow I end up finding endless numbers of hours in my day, you know, I always, I always, you know, especially the years where I spent in California, you know, I had this uh, Sunday morning in Blue Bottle Coffee on University Avenue. I'm sure you've been there. You have, yeah. And people would just walk in, you know, and introduce me to others. And like in that coffee morning, I would get eight pitches, you know, people with ideas, talking about things and so on. And most of them, again, I look back and this is why I love your work. Most of them had no earned secret at all. As a matter of fact, many of them had missed the earned secrets. So they would come pitch me with what is Googleable, And I would answer them with what isn't and say, are you aware of this? Right. And those that completely got me were the ones that just came in and said, look, you know, if you Google this, it's not very clear. But if you Google this, this, this and that and mix that data together and look at this new idea or new trend, you would see something that no one else sees. And you're saying backable people are people that can find that thing that no one else sees. Yeah. You know, one of the people that I studied for the book was a producer uh, named Brian Grazier. He's won over 130 Emmys, dozens of Oscars, but he also invests in technology companies. It sounds a lot like you, Mo. He takes a lot of meetings and he, um, you know, he listens to a lot of pitches from all sort of walks of life. And so when I was sitting in his waiting room, this is pre-COVID, I'm sitting in his waiting room and the room is packed and you could just tell the anxiety inside the room is high. People are nervous. They're about to go see him. They're about to pitch him on, on their ideas. So when I go back there, I say to Brian, I say, listen, you got a room of really nervous people out there. If I could walk out there and give them one piece of advice, just one piece of advice, what would it be? And he thinks about it for a moment. And he says, give me something that I can't easily find on Google. You know, give me something that's not easily Googleable. And what I realized after talking to Brian and after talking to, to lots of other backers is that great meetings, great pitches, great presentations, they all tend to be based on a hidden, a somewhat hidden insight, a somewhat unique insight. But the key is that that unique insight, that's something that you have gone out there personally, and you have found that yourself. The slam dunk meeting is like, I spent time in the field doing what most people don't do. I talked to customers that people usually don't talk to. I surveyed our competitors' customers. Most people don't do that. I didn't just test drive our products. I tested drive 
products that, that aren't even here in the United States. I flew to other countries and test drove those products. There are these hidden insights that we start to collect and we start to bring into the meetings that tend to be the foundation, I think, for ideas. And great ideas, great pitches are built on these earned secrets. And I don't think it necessarily, by the way, needs to be that you, you have an idea for a new film or a new company. The other day I was talking to you know, someone who she's a mother of two and she wants to return to the workforce. And she saw an opening at a social media company and she was like, this is perfect. The role seems perfect for me. But there was one catch. And the catch was that she didn't personally use the product herself. So what she did was, I think, was just brilliant, which is that she interviewed her daughter and then she interviewed every single one of her daughter's <laughs> close friends. Clever. And she had them send her screenshots of their experience. These little moments that they really liked about the experience, the, these little feature requests that they had, they wish things were different. And then she collected all these screenshots into a gallery. And then she goes to this interview, which is over Zoom. And now she brings this gallery of screenshots and she's literally walking this hiring manager through all this research that she has collected along with some of her, you know, some of her recommendations. This hiring manager is so impressed that not only does she get the job, but in literally in the middle of the meeting, he ends up bringing in one of the UX designers onto this Zoom meeting <laughs> to say, hey, you've got to check out some of these insights that she was able to collect. And so again, I, I, don't, I don't think this needs to mean that you are, you are doing something that's just earth shattering, but sometimes we just stay behind our desk. We do a little bit of light Google research and we think that that's enough. It, it hardly ever is. I love the humbleness that comes with that. And I, I will tell you openly, in my writing style, I have a very weird approach, actually, where when I'm convinced of something, I normally write what I'm convinced of. And then I write references between three question marks on every side. So three question marks, references, three question marks. And it doesn't happen very often. So basically, my style is I'm almost certain that if I go out on the internet and search for something that proves what I'm convinced of, I will find it later. So let me not waste time now. Let me just write it now and I'll find the reference later. Sometimes though, when you start searching for those references, you get things that are almost the opposite of what you told yourself. I promise you some of the best writing I've ever done was when I actually allowed myself to follow that earned secret. It's like, no, no, hold on, hold on. Common belief is that this is what happens, but what I'm seeing now is telling me it's not, right? And I remember vividly, I mean, in, in my third book, which is going to be called the, That Little Voice in Your Head, I remember vividly that I was trying so hard to equate meditation with a certain brain function because I'm convinced that this is the way it works. And then I looked at the, the different frequencies of our brain when it does different things, and it was just constantly proving the opposite. And in my mind, I'm like, do I really have to write those four pages again? Can I just find a way to fake the data so that it works reasonably well and we'll just fly away with this? And then I stopped at that earned secret and wrote an entire chapter on it. And the idea of finding something that maybe others haven't seen is just so groundbreaking. It's really good for you, good for the person that will read it. And, and I think it really makes all the difference, if you ask me to just give people that aha moment, right? Absolutely. And I think even just the story that you just told, which is that, hey, you know, I wrote this. I felt like this was the way it was. I went and I started doing research, realized it wasn't, decided to change my tact entirely, 
ended up doubling down on that, wrote a whole chapter on the counter theory. Those stories are the stories that end up sort of getting us really engaged with someone. I, I remember when I was first starting to pitch my company, it was just me and a friend. And we're trying to make this work and, and we didn't really have any resources. And the way that I recruited my first customers was that I would stand outside of Weight Watchers meetings. Okay. And as people were about to walk in, I'd say, hey, you know, would you mind if I show you this prototype of an app that I've built? And most of the time people would say no, but every once in a while, someone would say, sure, give it to me. And I, and I would, and I'd, I'd, I'd walk them through it. And, and if they liked it, if they felt engaged, I'd sometimes sign them up right on the spot. And that's how I got my first pilot customers. Now, that's not a story that I enjoyed telling, especially in a place like Silicon Valley, where you know, you're expected to have sort of a funnel analysis. You know, I put this amount of money into sophisticated Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising. Here were our conversion rates. Here's how it looked. Like Those are the types of analyses that I think investors want to hear. So I kind of hid the Weight Watcher story out of sight. But one day, an investor sort of pushed me on it. He's like, well, where did you find these people? Where did you find your pilot customers? So finally, I just gave him the, the answer. I'm like, oh, like, I stood outside of Weight Watchers meetings. That turned out to be the part of the story that he loved the most. I love it. <laughs> I have to tell you, it's an amazing story. It's so much commitment and so much humbleness. And really, this is where humans, real people exist, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's an amazing it's, story. Oh, man, you are so committed, so humble. I love it. I love it. I, I also have to say, I'm, I really appreciate your time. And I want to go into the two remaining concepts, if you sure. don't mind. I think, of course. I think that would make the view very comprehensive. And, uh, and as I said, I actually encourage everyone to read the details. It's not just the high level. So you call it exhibition circles. I don't disagree with this concept, but it's not my style at all. So, you know, your concept number six, you're saying play exhibitions matches, which is basically practice, 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 practice endlessly. And, and I, I heard you once in a talk with someone that mentioned my favorite TED talk of all time, Jill Balty Taylor, and that she actually practiced 200 times before she gave that talk. I don't do that at all, actually. I, I find that if I practice... I lose my heart. I get my brain in the right place, but I lose my heart, if you know what I mean. So tell me your view of this. What is practice to you? Well, I, I think it's really interesting, and I appreciate you bringing it up because it's exactly sort of how I felt about it as well. One of the things I discovered is that amongst the vast majority of people who I thought were just naturally backable, they were very convincing inside a room, what I realized is that the vast majority of them were, were the product of lots and lots of practice lots and lots of practice rounds. And what we call these in the book is we call these exhibition matches. And one of the central principles, I think, of around being backable is that long-term success comes from short-term embarrassment. Hmm. And that embarrassment can come in high-stakes situations, but it can also come in low-stakes situations. I love that. And I think once you realize, once you realize that you're going to have to go through embarrassment in order to get to a point where you really are compelling, where you really are convincing, then why not start doing that in these sort of lower stakes situations in front of friends, in front of family, in front of friendly colleagues? This is now after you've taken some time to convince yourself of the idea, but you're now you're starting to practice the idea of how do I explain it? And what I found was, was startling. I, I, what I found is that you know, the average backable person played around 21 exhibition matches before they went into a live performance. 
which I know sounds like overkill. It did to me as well. Maybe for some of the same reasons that you're bringing up, Mo, because I, I felt like if you practice something that much, isn't that going to make you much more mechanical? Isn't it going to come off as rehearsed? It might for certain people, but for me, and I've had this now an opportunity to sort of walk a lot of people through this, what I have found has been the opposite. It has made me more natural and not less natural. And the reason for that is because when you achieve such a mastery of your own material, what that allows you to do is to be fully, fully present with the person that you're with. Like right now, I feel like you and I are having a connection. Like we, we are actually having a real conversation. Yeah. Part of the reason that is possible is because I understand my material really, really well. Yeah. You don't have to spend the cycles on it. Exactly. If I don't have to start mentally thinking about, all right, I'm going to say this to Mo, and then I'm going to say that, and I'm going to say to that. I don't, I'm no longer there. It's just not taking up any of my mental process anymore. So I can be fully tuned in to you. That is so important when it comes to being backable, because as we know, these backable moments, they're not monologues, they're interactions. You don't go in and, and give your pitch and walk out of the room and get funding. You don't go in, do an interview, give a monologue about your resume and walk out and get the job. It's a series of interactions. And to really, I think, hit a home run during those interactions, you need to be tuned in. You need to be adapting to what's happening on the other side of the table. And that's where I feel the, the real value of exhibition matches comes in. I love that. Actually, the way you explained it makes so much more sense to me. I'll be very open. Actually, I'll share very personal stories here. One of the struggles I sometimes have with my current startup, which is really, really, really an amazing startup in many ways, and my partners are amazing, is that we do what is sometimes referred to as practice, but now that I listen to you, isn't. It's more, I think what, what we do is that we intellectualize, we think about things rather than practice. When What you're saying is put yourself in the situation and practice, right? Yes. And if you practice in front of your partners, it's a safe environment. It doesn't really take that much. And I, and I think that's very different than sit in a meeting and just do analysis paralysis about every possible situation. And I think that's really interesting. That brings up a really, I mean, I think that's an excellent point, which is that preparation and practice can mean two different things. Oftentimes preparation, what I think of as preparation, oftentimes is just putting new information in my head. And that's typically how I would prepare for a job interview. I, I'll never forget, I was interviewing with Jack Dorsey when he had just started. It was a little bit after he had started Square. And I really wanted this job. And I felt very qualified for it. I had spent a few years at that point working at Groupon. So I, I understood e-commerce and it was a product role. I'd spent a few years working in product management. And I go into this interview and I completely, completely tank it. I mean, it was the worst job interview I've ever done in my life. <laughs> and the thing is that it wasn't a hard one. Like he was, he was a very generous person. He was asking me softball questions. He was asking me questions like, what do you, you know, how do you think about product management? Softball question. You know, I had worked in product management. I had written product management papers. I had led product management teams, and yet I could not string together a sentence. And so it wasn't until years later when I was writing this book, I brought this story up to a guy named Oren Jacob, who was the chief technology officer at Pixar. And the reason I wanted to study Oren is because Pixar is kind of one of these sort of like backable universe places where you have all this tension coming from business and creative and engineering and writing and people are kind of really rubbing up against each other. And, and it, there's a lot of tension inside. 
but it, they end up crafting this beautiful products. And I wanted to understand how this all works and how does somebody like Oren, who's sort of sitting at the center of it all as chief technology officer, how does he manage all of that? And so I tell him this Jack Dorsey story and he asks me, did you practice before you walk in? Did you practice before you walked into that meeting? And I said, well, yeah, I prepared. I, I put all, you know, I, I did all my research. I took notes. He's like, no, no, no. Different. That's preparation. Yeah. It's different. Did you actually practice? And I said, do you mean, to, did I rehearse what I was going to say before I walked into the room? I said, no, of course not. I don't do that. And he said, well, let me get this straight. You went to law school, right? This is him asking me this. And I said, yeah. He's like, well, before you went into a test, did you take practice tests? And I said, yeah. I mean, that's literally how I got through law school was taking these practice tests. And he said, okay, so for a law school test, you spent hours doing practice rounds, but for maybe one of the most important job interviews of your career, you didn't practice once. Yeah, there you go. It's very clear. I mean, when I, when I was young, I work on me and my personal development very diligently in a very, very deliberate way, actually. And, and one of my things being the ultimate introvert is I remember vividly that one year I gave myself the target of you're going to be able to talk to everybody. Like by the end of this year, you will walk into a party, introverted as you are, and you will choose a person randomly. And within six seconds, you'll be talking to them. And I, I remember vividly because you use the word low stake practices, right? And so what I chose at the time was I decided I will always talk to the person in front of me in Starbucks and I will always talk to the barista, right? Whether it's that big guy who's wearing his worker suit and carrying the tools or whether it's the old lady who is, you know, waiting for her morning tea or whatever that is, I will always speak to the person in front of me. And you have no idea. In no time at all, it became so natural for me to find the topic to talk to someone about. It's like, if it's one of those workers, I will look at his drill and I say, oh my God, I love that brand. You know, it's, this is very reliable. Or if it's the old lady, I would say, would you mind if I carry your coffee for you? Or if it's, you know, someone who is looking at the, at the sign frantically, I would say something like, yeah, man, so many choices. It's so confusing, right? And it's just practice, practice, practice. And it starts to become so easy. And I actually think this also brings me to my third comment, which is practice on low stakes when you're having a high stakes conversation with someone that you love. So if you want to talk to, to your partner about something, literally sit with your friend and don't ask for opinions. Don't take notes. Don't, you know, say, look, I'm planning to tell him this, or I'm planning to tell her this. How does this sound to you? And I think those are really, really, really valuable tips that you share. It's so eye-opening. You changed my mind. You changed my mind, which I think is really crazy for an old man like me who has done so much without practicing. I'll take you to the, to the seventh and most wonderful concept, which actually is similar to, you know, it's an, an interesting segue is practice with people that you trust and that are low stake. You say backable circles are the key. So if you really want to be backable, find, you call them the four C's, the the collaborator, coach, cheerleader, and cheddar. Okay, I'm not <laughs> going to reveal this. You, you have to tell us a little bit about that yourself. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I took a trip to Bhutan, Kingdom of Bhutan. And in Bhutan is just a wonderful country. I continue to spend time working 
with people there. What fascinates me about Bhutan is that Bhutan measures itself based on what they call gross national happiness. Mm. So for the past 50 years, they have not used GDP as their prime source of figuring out progress, but it's more about they consider economic growth to be part of something bigger, this idea of gross national happiness. So when I was there, I had a chance to spend time with the researchers. And what I realized is that you know, they've been at this now for over 50 years. And I asked them, when you go town to town and you're talking to citizens, is there a question that you can ask that would really give you a sense, a good indicator, at least, of someone's happiness before you get into the full in-depth analysis? And they said, yeah, actually, the, there is. And the question is, if you were in trouble right now, who could you call and know with 100% certainty that person would be there for you? Mm. And they believe that, that the people who are able to answer that question, have clear answers to that question, are much more likely to be happy. But there's a twist. And the twist is, whose list are you on? Who can call you and know with 100% certainty that you will be there for them? Wonderful. It's not a line. It's a circle. Mm-hmm. It's a circle. And, and I think that that hit me so hard because I, I think that we are as social creatures community as we know is so important. It's how we thrive. That's true in life. Then I think that's true in, in business as well. When I started the study backable people, I realized that they had these circles of people around them that they would go to for uh, career choices, that we go to for, with new ideas for big decisions that they were making. And they would run these ideas by these people. And I started to kind of unpack who was in these circles, what types of personalities existed in these circles. And, and I realized that there tended to be four common people, four common personalities in each backable person's circle. And I call these the four C's, these four people, the four C's. The first is your collaborator, your collaborator. So this is someone who, when you're with them, you feel like you're in a musical jam session with them. They're kind of building on top of your ideas. They're using language like yes and, and that's your collaborator. I think we all sort of have someone that we feel this way about. And the second is your coach. And your coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is somebody who is focused on whether your idea is good for the market or good for the company or good for the team, your coach is really also thinking about, is your idea good for you? I love that. Yeah. Does it really fit you and who you are? Because as, as we both know, Mo, like there's so many ideas out there that might be good for other people, right? They're good for the market. They're good. They would do a lot of good in the world, but they're not necessarily good for you. One of my favorite stories is, is when Martin Luther King was considering taking over, taking his leadership role in the civil rights movement. And he wasn't, it wasn't clear that that was something that he should do because he was very young. And a lot of people don't realize this, but you know, he was in his late 20s, early 30s when he ended up taking on this massive, massive role. And he went to go see one of his mentors, this guy, Howard Thurman, to really sort of think through the decision. And one of the things that he told Howard Thurman is, look, I think this is going to be very, very important for the world. And Howard Thurman said to him, don't just ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive. Because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. Oh, that is so beautiful. Yeah. That is so beautiful. And only your coach will remember that. Coach is going to be the person who's going to offer you that lens. Not just is it good for the world, but is it, is it, is it something that makes you come alive? So that's your coach. Your cheerleader 
is the third one. And the cheerleaders, you know, it, it may sound cheesy, but I think we all need this person in our lives. This is somebody who you can call and just no matter what, you're going to get that positive encouragement that you need. Yeah. And we all, again, we all need that. You know, I, I studied, one of the people I studied for the book was a woman named Ellen Levy and Fast Company magazine named Ellen Levy, the, the most connected woman in Silicon Valley. And so she's got members of Congress and Fortune 500 CEOs in her Rolodex. I ask her, before you walk into a big moment, a big meeting, who do you call? And she says, that's easy. I call my mom. <laughs> my mom is my, my last call before I walk into that room. So your cheerleader. The fourth is your critic, but I like to call this person your cheddar. <laughs> and the reason I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever seen the movie Eight Mile, and I'm coming to you right now from right outside of Detroit, one of my favorite movies, Eminem. I love that movie. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Eminem in the movie is surrounded by this circle of people, his circle of friends, and they're all kind of building him up through the movie. But there's one friend named Cheddar who's always kind of uh, just being a little bit nitpicky, sort of poking holes in his ideas. He's sort of pointing out these, these things that maybe Eminem's not seeing. And what we're realizing throughout the film is that it's Cheddar who's actually getting Eminem ready for the stage. And I think we all have a cheddar in our lives, someone who kind of, you know, almost annoyingly so will say, yeah, but what about this? <laughs> well, what about that? Right. But as long as that person is coming from the right place, as long as we know that they actually do have our best interest at heart, cheddar can be the most valuable part of your circle because without cheddar, we can't really get prepared for a backable moment. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And so our tendency sometimes is to want to push cheddar away. But what I've noticed from backable people is they always have at least one cheddar that they really embrace. They pull into their circle and really hold that person dear and tight. Yeah, because that, that person is the person that is really not trying to poke holes in your story because they dislike you. They poke holes in your story because they like you. That's right. If you know that you can trust them and they can tell you the truth, Right, the truth exactly. is very valuable. As I always say, the truth sets you free, even if it's first pisses you off. And I think that's truly probably the most valuable person you'll ever have in your circle. I'll, I will tell you the truth, Sunil. I have rarely ever met someone as backable as you. And I, I have to say, because of all of the seven concepts, but because of something I don't know how to describe, I'm sitting in front of you. And I really feel how genuine you are. I really feel from deep in my heart. And those energies sadly cannot be captured in a podcast recording. But, but I'm telling the audience here, I'm sitting in front of someone who is purely committed to what he does so much, so generous, so wise, and so openly sharing all that you know, to the point that I will tell you, I'm not only willing to back you in any possible way I can, but I'm so in my heart throughout the conversation, so wishing for your book to be an ultimate bestseller, to beat me hands down in everything that I write for the rest of my life. And I'm, I can't wait for your book on Dharma to come through. You're so wonderful in every possible way. I love you, man. I love every minute you gave us. This has been one of my favorite conversations this year. I really can't thank you enough. Oh, no, that means so much to me. I, I feel really grateful that we just had a chance to, to connect. And even though we can't be in the same room, be face-to-face -face through Zoom the way we are right now, it's, it's, it really is a gift. And I, and I really appreciate you, you building the, the community that you've 
you've built and allowing me to be a little part of it means a lot. I think everyone will be very grateful for, for what you've contributed to all of us today. Guys, backable, big, big, big recommendation from me. Hunt Sunil down, make him successful. I mean, he's already successful, but make this one as successful as it should be. I love this man. I think it's been wonderful in every possible way. At the end of this wonderful conversation, I just have to say that being backable is such an interesting asset. It's something that we should all aspire to have in our life. And I have to say, Sunil is so backable. He is such a great, credible example of what he's pitching, not only for the seven steps, but for how genuinely wonderful this human being is. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have too. Spread the word, tell others this is useful for so many people to find success and balance and peace in their life. Find me on social media, mo underscore gaudet on Instagram, mo gaudet on LinkedIn, mo.gaudet.official on Facebook, or mgaudet on Twitter. And tell me what you think of this. Do help me to spread the wisdom that I get in slow-mo from so many wonderful people to others by sharing about your experience, telling people that you love what you heard on social media, and also rating this podcast a five stars if you haven't already done so. It really helps me out. It really helps me spread the message. So please take the time. I will say one more time, slowing down doesn't really slow down. It sometimes allows you to go faster. And remember, it's regardless of how much you have to do today, you will always be able to find some time to slow down. I thank you so much for the alibi you give me to talk to so many amazing people. I love you all for listening and I'll see you next time.